0: Welcome to the Wanderlust Journal podcast based upon great storytelling. We'll be sharing adventures, recommendations, and tips for the aspiring writer. I'm your host, Sarah Leamy. I am a wanderer since I was a teenager hitching across France. I usually travel alone with dogs and in various vehicles. I'm the author of Van Life, Bring a Chainsaw, and numerous others. And I have a master's degree in writing and publishing, so you are in good hands today. If you'd like to hear more, simply subscribe, stick around, and we'll take you around the world. Okay, thank you for coming today. I wanted to talk about what is overlanding. Carrying on from last episode, saying what is in a name, I thought I'd go straight into what is overlanding. And I did talk about it a little, somewhat, last time. But according to Wikipedia overlanding is self-reliant overland travel to remote destinations where the journey is the principal goal typically but not exclusively they say it is accomplished by with mechanized off-road capable transport from bicycles to trucks where the principal form of lodging is camping and it often lasts for extended lengths of time from months to years and spans international boundaries and I'd pretty much agree with that I From my own travels, it's nearly always been vehicle-dependent, apart from hitching, which I would also say is vehicle-dependent, but I'm not the driver. And with that, yes, I was also camping a lot and relying on the goodness of other people to do what I could. So I would have to say, you know, there is the difference between what is overlanding and what is camping. I mean, you know, car camping is traveling in a vehicle to a campground often. Um, Backcountry camping is doing the same thing, traveling in a vehicle to uh, boondock areas or free camping, wild camping, they call it in England, boondocking, they seem to call it in the southwest. I don't know what they call it where you are. Um, But as one website said, if there's a picnic table there, it's probably car camping. And I have to say, when I traveled across from New Mexico to Oregon around the west. I did a three-month first trip in this Dodge van seven years ago with two dogs and a cat. I nearly always stayed on smaller roads, preferably dirt roads. I avoided all the highways and all the interstates as much as possible. And I would free camp. And I used maps at that point because it was seven years ago and I wasn't really into using much tech. I use a lot more these days. And quite often there would be a picnic table, but there might be pit toilets and not much else. And I also discovered, especially in, I think it was California, that car camping, they thought that car camping meant you wanted to pull up, park your vehicle and then walk 100 to 200 yards with all your camping gear and go camp in a field away from your vehicle. Not exactly my idea of fun. So overlanding, vehicle-supported, self-reliant, adventure travel, self-reliant is another aspect to this, is um, do you have everything you need? Do you have your power? Do you have water? Do you have the ability to cook? Do you have your own uh, toilet or a shovel, in my case, or a bucket, a pea bucket, whatever it is? That's another aspect to it. Do you have everything you need? Um, do you like going to remote locations? Uh Do you like interacting with other people and other cultures? Because again, there's some definitions that talk about uh, overlanding as spanning international boundaries. I'd sort of disagree with that. I think that any long distance vehicle dependent travel is potentially overlanding. Uh, It's could be camping you could call it camping or back um van life you, you know there's so many phrases but i kind of want to stick to the overlanding try idea this time I mean, one of the things from years ago was Camel Trophy. And I did meet a bunch of the Camel Trophy guys at Overland Expo, which I'll talk about in a minute, and who's occasionally called the Olympics of 4x4. The Camel Trophy was an off-road vehicle-oriented competition that was um, occurred between 1980s and 2000, more or less. And it was the best known for its use of the Land Rover vehicles over these challenging terrains. And if you get a chance, um, have a look On YouTube and have a look online and do some research and you'll find some just incredible videos and photos of what they did and how they did it. Um, The Land Rovers, a love of mine, I've had multiple Land Rovers and as a kid we grew up, um, I grew up in England, which you might be able to tell by my accent, and my dad had old Land Rovers. I guess they would have been series two because this would have been in the 70s and he took us. So me and my brother and my mum and dad would go traveling around England and Wales and Scotland. We never went to Ireland together and then over into um, mainland Europe. We did not have anything fancy. We just had a big tent for the four of us and a table and a little, you know, one ring cook stove. And that was it. And oh. there's photos of me at age, I don't know, six months, I guess, five months, six months on the floor on a blanket next to her tent as mom and dad are putting up a tent and my brother's poking and poking me with something or other. So it's in the blood. So Land Rovers, I've had my own Land Rovers, had a 19. What was it? 1958 Land Rover, uh, 72, and 99, and what was it? Is that it? The three of them? I guess that's just the three of them these days. I still have the Discovery 2, which I'm thinking of bringing back to Baja next year. But anyways, I dig- I digress. These cars, um, the Land Rover special vehicles that they used on the Camel Trophy, and they went. let's see... They went there was a lot of it was going through the Amazon basin those are the that's the part that I noticed or have watched the most of and they the first event um let's see when did it go it it went and they took um say they took roll cages uh winches snorkels huge mud terrain tires they upgraded their suspension they just did so much stuff to it, it was incredible nineteen eighty they were in started off the first one was with um jeep jeep actually and that was to brazil and then 1981 it started with range rovers um uh, 1982 papua new guinea and they just carried on over the years to all these different places literally for looks like every year all different places with discoveries um, up until 1998 when they went to Tierra del Fuego in the Freelander, which is also a Land Rover. And they had the defenders as support vehicles. So it was kind of incredible that uh, this competition and they had people, teams from Netherlands, France, Germany, Turkey all over who won won these trophies, the Camel Trophy. So that's something great to look up. I'll put the link to some of those things in there episode notes, which kind of brings me to the idea of, you know, there's a lot of discussion these last few days, last few days, last few years of what is overlanding and what's the best vehicle for overlanding. I go to the Overland Expo event, and which I love, I have to say. I've only really been to the one in Flagstaff, uh, but there I've seen it expand from let's see, 12 years ago when I first went and it wasn't in Flagstaff yet, it was just a little bit south. It was a lot smaller and more about the community. And now it's definitely about the gear. And they have their own website. And again, I'll give you, it's overlandexpo.com. And one of their articles is by, let's see, it is by Nick Janes. And it comes from this year, January 2023. So actually just a few weeks ago. And he wants to, he says, he starts this article. I declared in... 2022, that there is no one best vehicle for overlanding. And I still stand by that, kind of. But um, he carries on to say, honestly, it is impossible to name just one overlanding rig. It all comes down to personal taste, budget and intended use. And so that's, I think, is key. There's all these events. There's the van life events. There's the RV, cheap RV living events. There's nomad events. um, Back back country, camping events, there's so many things that are out there, at least that I see in the States and in um, Baja, Mexico, that focus, some focus on the community and the skills, some focus um, or get their funding, I guess, from the advertising and the marketing and the selling of the gear and the rigs. But it really does come down to personal taste, your budget and what you want to do. Right now, I'm just in, and I have been for the last Seven years almost is a 2003 Dodge B1500 van. That when I got it, I'd met an, uh, an artist who was in his 70s, and he saw that I was we were chatting and he found out that I was planning to do a three month road trip across and exploring the northwest of the states with three big dogs in a forerunner, a 1995 forerunner. And he offered me his van to use instead because, as he reckoned, it would be a little more comfortable. And it's true. I no longer have that forerunner. It kept dying and breaking and it became completely unreliable. And so, yes, I moved everything into that van and we took off. Now, seven years later, I'm still exploring and I've been spent five months in Baja last year doing it. And I'm doing that again this year. But anyway, back to Nick Jane's book, Nick Jane's article. From overlandexpo.com, what's the best overland vehicle? And he mentions and he goes through mid size pickup trucks, fifth generation Ford Ranger. Uh, what else does he say? He also talks about the second generation Chevrolet Colorado, another pickup truck, um, Jeep Gladiator. And the photo has the rooftop tent and all the gear and the yeah. All the, all the stuff, all the stuff, stuff, stuff. Another pickup truck he mentions is the third generation Toyota Tundra. So it's odd to me that these are nearly all pickup trucks. I guess because he's imagining people going more, um, I don't know. I would not want to live in a pickup truck with a rooftop tent. It just doesn't work for me. Yep, so and then he has another section called full-size and three-quarter ton pickup trucks. Um and then body on frame SUVs which include the Bronco uh, the Jeep Wrangler JL the Toyota Sequoia which seems uh, another odd one for me um again it's pretty heavy it's pretty big kind of flashy uh, i'm really not into personally driving big flashy vehicles so i would pers- i would suggest um Actually, use what you've got. You don't need to buy all this stuff. You don't need to get all the extra stuff. Just find out your minimum comfort level of what is essential to you. For me, that was having a desk inside my van, much more so than having a kitchen or a bathroom. So I have a bed, a desk, and then I put in a galley kitchen in the back. And that's about it. So what does make a good overlanding rig? I mean, according to Nick Jane and... Overland Expo seems very much into um, newer is better because of what it's capable for and off-roading and pretty distant, you know, rough and rugged roads. Um, I also think that overlanding is um, more about Going long distances, and so if we're doing long distances, our vehicle is our home, and so we're not going to do crazy shit, right? Because we have more at risk, we have more to lose. So having a vehicle, on the flip side of that, having a vehicle that you can walk away from is also huge. So my van cost four thousand seven years ago, and it's I put on I think it's like seventy eight thousand miles on it in that in those years, of, uh, purely traveling and living in it, and having that i know it's my home but i look in there and as and when i do break down and i have to walk away and go stay somewhere else when it's being fixed or if uh, i hate to say it might get to the point where it can't be fixed and i have to walk away <coughs> the essential things that i would hold on to i can carry in a backpack which i have an extra backpack under my bed just for that occasion in case I need to fill it and walk away. And also a friend Katie recommended to always have a flattened cardboard box, some heavy duty tape and uh, markers, sharpies, so that again you can send things back to wherever you need to from wherever you are, which I think is a great idea. So really overlanding is it's, it's historical. It goes back to, unfortunately, colonialism, a lot of it. And also, I would say it goes back to curiosity. People like myself these days, in the since the 70s and 80s, 90s, whatever, onwards, um, why are we traveling? That's the question. Are we, We're not traveling to conquer the world or to prove anything, but out of curiosity. Some of us travel really fast and furious and try to click off as many... Um, countries as possible on the list and others take it more slow and steady and even at times become expats, stay somewhere, live, work, rent, get to know the community, be part of the community on some superficial yet satisfying level, which is what I do, and then move along. And so there's, there's many things that overlanding can be. There is the book Overlander's Handbook that goes back a long time, uh, written by Chris Scott. There's an updated edition. I have the first edition and it shows routes. It talks about vehicles. It talks about what you need. Uh, This came out in 2011 and I think I got it 2011, 2012. It's just fascinating because it has a great introduction center called planning and preparation, choosing a vehicle, four by fours, modifying your vehicle, converting a vehicle, um, how to do the build out, Um, life on the road, driving overland and then it also has another section on route outlines for Asia Africa, Latin America and beyond Um, I do want to read briefly a couple of um, excerpts from that for today and then we'll finish with that so hang on a second where no one went where no tracks crossed and no one where even wells could be counted on the fingers of one hand among other names, it's known as the Mahabat al Kabu, or Empty Quarter, and it spills over all these borders, a hyper-arid half a million square miles not much at all. Part of the reason Saharan travellers avoid it these days more than ever is the higher-than-average chance of getting robbed or kidnapped. And after a few quiet post-independence decades, banditry has returned to the Sahara. How else do you make a living in a desert? I'd heard of and had my share of tents or close encounters since the nomadic rebellions and c- current activities, but smugglers usually avoided all contact on the move, while bandits tended to prey in areas where they can be sure to make a hit. By travelling off-piste in an uncommon orientation, we hoped to stay below their radar, but without local knowledge, the run would still be too dr- risky, so we had to bend a few immigration rules to make it happen. I had my eye on a guy who ran an agency in Algeria, and during the trip with him, I put the question, how did he feel about joining me on a 2,000-kilometer traverse across this Lakota Vide from Atta in Mauritania across northern Mali to the southern Algeria? Mohammed sucked in his cheeks, raised his eyebrows, and with a nomad's typical understa- understatement said, it's a long way. He maintained good connections out there from his own smuggling days, but such a trip wouldn't be cheap. There were lots of mouths to feed, so to speak. 10 months later, I blasted across Algeria, and I'd never tried to pull off anything like this before, something I might once have dismissed as a stunt. But part of the appeal of pursuing adventurous goals is to push yourself a little further as your experience grows. And so that was from Chris Smith. And Chris Scott, I mean, from his book Overlander's Handbook in the back, there is a section with uh, five or two five or so different stories, excerpts from different people's books. So I wanted to include that and let you know that there are so many ways to do overlanding, and whatever you want to call it, you know, just make sure your vehicle is solid and that it's it's capable, it's going to do what you want it to do, that you have everything you need, that you're self-sufficient, pitching your tent and patching your tires, all of that kind of thing. Exploring, you know, the journey is the goal. Forget all the gear, forget all the crap, just enjoy the detours and the signs and go, oh, yes, I think I'll go that way this time, rather than making a beeline for a specific destination. Just ramble along. And if you can, I'd say aim for uncharted territory or at least unfamiliar territory. I mean, the goal is to step out of your comfort zone, right? To learn and open up. So look for uncharted territory and try to go for as long as you can. So again, it's the balance. I know for a lot of us, it's the balance of money and time. I personally don't have much money, but I have a lot of time. And so I'm very fortunate in that. And I hope that you can be too. Um, There's a lot of resources out there. One app I definitely recommend for global uh, travel would be the iOverlander app. And on that... you can zoom in on any country, you can look up and it's all fed, the information is all fed from people like us that are out there doing this and going traveling, whether you call it traveling, wandering, backcountry adventure, 4 by 4 overlanding, expeditions, doesn't matter the name, to be honest, whether you're a nomad, van lifer, it doesn't matter. It's all about exploring and challenging yourself and meeting people along the way so that is my little rant today on what is overlanding go out check out your vehicle look at it and see what you do oh you know what I think with the next episode I am going to look for the most um for a variety of different people in different vehicles I know people have done trips in, you know, all the different expensive gears and vans and Unimogs and all this shit and vans, obviously, and Land Rovers, but I'm going to look for all the other ways. And we're going to talk about hitching, um, hiking and funny little vehicles. There's the sidecar guys, I think. There's um, a woman I met that traveled across the States. I'm still in touch with Sarah Blessington, who did it in a little... Uh, scooter with all her stuff strapped to it. Um, so yes, so that will be in the next episode. So stick around. Thanks a lot. Enjoy your day and happy dreams. Happy travels. If you'd like to find out more about either Wanderlust Journal or myself and my books, you'll find the links in the episode notes below. That's saralimi.com and wanderlust-journal.com. It's all completely free. If you're interested in supporting the Wanderlust Journal and keeping it free for everyone who wants to publish, read or hear these travel stories, there is also a link to the Buy Me A Coffee page below.